you have to be obsessed with creating efficiency in your business. You have to be obsessed with it. You have to lose sleep over it. In an advisory practice, the ultimate goal is to be better at servicing your clients. How do you do that? It comes down to efficiency. This is Bridging the Gap with your host, Matt Reiner. Frank LaRosa, welcome to Bridging the Gap. How are you doing, my friend? I'm awesome. How are you doing? Welcome to the new year. Yeah, same to you. Same to you. I mean, it, it, it's not common to have a, a Braves fan and a Phillies fan on the same podcast talking cordially as well. So I, I hope we can make it through an entire uh, episode. I think we can. I think we can do it. But, uh, you know, congrats to your Phillies on making it to the World Series and beating my Braves. But hopefully it doesn't happen again. Yeah, well, well said. I appreciate that. I'm going to I'm going to bet that says uh, it might it'll probably happen this this coming year, too. So. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. All right. Well, I like Atlanta too. So I like Atlanta too. So if it was, if we're going to lose anybody, I'd rather be Atlanta than any than the Mets. There you go. There you go. I, I hey, we're both aligned on that. So let's focus on where we're aligned, uh, yeah. and we can all we can create commonalities around that. Well, I'm I'm really excited about this conversation. You know, I've I've been following your work for a while. Uh, you know, all over social media, and you know what you've been doing with your podcast, and uh, I've been fortunate to, to be joining you on that podcast as well. But I think it'd be great, you know, in our conversations, we're going to be talking about operational efficiencies. We're going to be talking about the industry. We're just going to kind of have this conversation because you're so versed in working with advisors that I think it's just going to bring so much awareness and insight to the listeners that, that, that can add value. But before we get into kind of the meat of the conversation, I always like to start out by talking about your journey. And I always usually start by asking the question, you know, what did the, the 13-year-old Frank LaRosa want to do? I mean, I don't know if elite consulting was on the, on the roadmap at 13, but what did the 13-year-old Frank LaRosa want to do? And, and then talk to me about you know, how that journey evolved to where you are today to being the founder and CEO of Elite Consulting Partners. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a great question. Um, I would say the 13-year-old Frank LaRosa Jr. probably, if I go back, wanted to be an architect. I love drawing. I love using my, you know, that sort of that, that side of my brain. Um, I love to build and design, right? And, and I love that whole part about being an architect. Got into college, uh, was in one of my um, people in their environment classes, and the professor got up and said, "If you're in, if you're in this business in this industry and make a lot of money, you're in the wrong business." That was the last class I ever took <laughs> uh, to be an architect. I switched over to to finance and marketing and you know, sort of stumbled into finance. Uh, they, you know, that old saying about behind every uh, successful man is a strong and successful woman. And so I had met my, my girlfriend at the time, uh, now my wife of 26 years, and said, you should go into finance and you should, you know, I'm like, okay, I didn't even know what a mutual fund was. I didn't even know anything about finance. She's like, you know how to sell, you know how to talk to people. You should be in finance. She had worked, at the time had just gotten a job at Lehman Brothers in New York. So did that and ended up working at, took an internship with uh, Prudential Securities back in the day. Uh, for those of you that know Prudential Securities, morphed into, you know, moved, eventually I moved my own, my own practice. I became an advisor, moved my practice, uh, which was a pamphlet at the time, you know, a couple hundred thousand in revenue. So I call that like a pamphlet. Moved it to uh, Smith Barney, grew that, left Morgan Stanley, was Morgan Stanley at the time, and 11, almost 12 years ago, started Elite Consulting Partners. Um, and it's interesting looking back that one of the reasons why I enjoy what I do today and, and also helping advisors is because I get them, I get to help, help an advisor build their, their business. I'm using the sort of the, the, 
creativeness that I have in my mind to build my own firm, right? To do the social media stuff and the branding. Uh, so I get to use that creative side of me and, and, and make more money than I probably would have if I was an architect. Although there's some good architects out there, but that's like the, it's like 1% of the 1%. So yeah, that's my path. You know, I've, I, I really, in, in my professional career, have only known financial services. You know, I got my, uh, I started in production in 1996. So I, I've been in the business since really as an intern since like 94, right? So seen a bunch of different things. It's all I know. It's all I talk about. It's all I think about as a, as a manager and a producer and now as a CEO of Elite Consulting Partners. I've seen every kind of business, every advisor, every type of client, just about. I mean, maybe there's one out there I didn't, I haven't seen yet. But, you know, so I've seen, I, I've gotten to, to see what works, what doesn't work, what styles resonate, how to deal with certain kinds of clients, what clients expect from an advisor, what firms are good and where to for certain advisors excel at certain types of firms and why. And, you know, how to, you know, to your point, and one of the things that you talk about a lot is, you know, how do you run an efficient business? I think there's a lot of great advisors out there, and it doesn't mean that they're good business owners, right? They're good practitioners, but sometimes they are not good operators of a business. And so many times I'll tell an advisor that they should just stay where they are at a wirehouse or regional firm because the things that they're going to have to do when they leave may be detrimental to the growth of their business because they're not yeah. good at it, right? Yeah. They need that infrastructure. And, you know, it's such an interesting journey that you went on. I love that you said that you wanted to be an architect because, I mean, you're now like helping to architect firms, right? I mean, that's what you're right. doing. You're helping, you know, you're helping to architect your own firm. That's that creative side, but you're solving problems. Like architects come in, they have to solve design challenges and they have to be creative and you have to be creative just in a unique way. And you and I align a lot on that way. I love, you know, solving challenges of how do we, how do we better serve clients? How do we, you know, how do we create a greater efficiencies? You mentioned, you know, talking about how we, we have aligned with this idea of running efficient businesses. I'm curious from your standpoint, you've worked with a lot of firms and you've seen both efficient and inefficient businesses run. What, what are some of those aspects of the firms that are not efficient that stand out? And what is keeping them from getting over the hurdle? Like what's holding them back from being efficient, right? I'm curious on on that side, because it's, uh, I have my own sense of, of belief on it, but uh, you've seen a, a lot more than I have on yeah. that side. So I'll answer that question by telling a quick story. I got a call and I won't use the name of the, the certainly won't use the name of the firm or anything, but I got a call from the wife, from the wife of a very successful CEO of a multi-million dollar RIA. So the wife calls and says, my husband needs help because he's, uh, you know, he's in his mid sixties or whatever. It's a seven or $8 million RIA and, and he can't operate like this anymore. He's going to kill himself. Meaning, meaning he's going to run himself into the ground. I need you to help him. So I'm like, okay, this is different. I've never gotten a call from a spouse before. So, but when I met with these people, what I found was that they had a great, you know, they were great asset managers, right? They, they knew how to take care of their clients and the service side, they had core values. They had all those things that you, that you should have when you're running a business, but their, their service model was their internal service model and operating operating model really was upside down. All the decisions had to go through him and he had a management team. So he had, he had people on the team that could do things, even like hiring interns. He was the first person that the intern would interview with. 
not the last or at all. I mean, an intern, like why you even, if your core management team can't determine whether or not that intern is the right fit for your firm, you should probably replace your core management team, right? <laughs> right. And so, so it's, it was inefficiencies in their workflows. So you're, you know, I know you have something called Benjamin and it's a, it's, you know, client CRM type of thing, but your the workflows in terms of how they operate their day as efficiently as possible. If you read the book, Good to Great, and if you follow Traction or EOS, right, it's all about, or Strategic Coach, right, it's all about having the right people in the right seats doing the things that they love to do, right? And so I see that as a real flaw in a lot of businesses today. And I think it's primarily because, you know, this wave of, advi of advisors going from the W-2 world, right, where the manager's doing stuff for them, and now they're, they, own their, they own their businesses, and they have to put a different hat on, and they're inexperienced in certain things. Not that it's bad, it's just they're inexperienced. So I see it a lot because more and more advisors are going independent. They're opening up their own RIAs, they're going to a broker dealer. But the other piece of it that, so that's, it's an operational inefficiency. It's trying to take on too much. So in, in, uh, in traction or good to great, they talk about let, letting go of the vine as a leader, right? And trusting your team and, let, and having the right team around you which is sort of an old school thing, right? Obviously you have the right team around you, but let going of vine, let, let them do the things that they do really well. So my advice to him was, what's going to have the most impact on the firm and the growth of the firm for you and your team is for you to do none of those things and spend all of your time with your clients and out finding new clients. Very well-respected individual in the community uh, across the river in Philadelphia. He should be spending all of his time just high touch, high touch with his clients, with his prospects, get more referrals and let his team, team do those things. The other, my other piece of advice to them, which is also a flaw that I see with most firms, especially for, I'll call them newer business owners, is their unwillingness to spend money on their business. One of my recommendations to him was they needed to hire a chief operating officer. So they, they didn't really have anyone that was running the business itself, right? And, you know, that's going to, for that size business, it's going to be a $150,000 a year job, right? Well, you have to be able to, you want to be able to spend that money. I've had firms where I've worked with before where they've done that and their growth was exponential because it took a lot of the day-to-day -day mundane operation stuff off the principal's plate so they can go out and then do what they do best, which is all, which is what we all did best originally was go out and find clients. That's how they make mm -hmm. the most money. And so... By doing those things, I found that that has helped. You know, you, you can even, you know, you'll talk about this as well. Spending money on technology to become more efficient on with how their workflows go. And, and just a lot of advisors, they get sticker shock sometimes when they see how much really good technology costs. You know, we, in our industry, I spend a, a tremendous amount of money on our technology in our CRM system, in our phone system, in our, in our commissions and billing system for my entire team. You know, so as a firm, just by way of background, we have 60, north of 60 people on my team, consultants, half of them are here in, in, locally, the other half are spread around the country. Um, and I recognized that in order for me to grow this business to where I want it to get as an enterprise, I have to invest back in technology, which is investing back in the people. And I think financial advisors don't make that connection, right? That if you're going to spend money on the right CRM system, 
because it makes you, maybe not you because you maybe don't even know how to use it as an advisor, but your assistants do, your staff does, so that it creates more efficiencies for them so they can get more work done and either handle more clients, right? Or if you don't want it, if you're limiting your clients, have more time to, to have a higher touch experience with the clients that you have. You know, it's creating operational efficiencies and also not being afraid to spend money on your business for growth. And you don't always get an immediate return on your investment if you're going to spend, you know, 50000 or $100,000 a year on a new piece of technology. You may not necessarily see the immediate effect, but your, mm-hmm. your staff might. You might see it a year later because you're, you're, all of a sudden you're doing more business. You're opening accounts quicker. You're, you're servicing your clients faster with less clicks. I, I'm, a, I'm a freak about how many can we reduce the number of clicks when, a, when one of my team goes into Salesforce to do you know, a certain task. Can we reduce it by one more click? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you and I are, are aligned on there. There's a lot of gold there that you sent. I mean, I think that you know the idea of advisors having control over every aspect of the firm. I think that that's such a challenge, right? That story you mentioned about interviewing the intern, like you don't need that. Like, there's no need, but that's like that control over every aspect. And then I think that that's like a psychological challenge that needs to be overcome of you know moving and it's such an interesting psychological battle because in order to get there you have to figure out how to let go but mm-hmm. we feel that if we let go then someone's not going to do it as well but i think that the a good piece of advice and i i, I read this I, I read this somewhere or i heard someone say it, i don't know where it was but it was actually during a presentation if it's a decision that's not going to drastically impact your business like an intern like it doesn't matter if it if it's going to drastically alter your life then yeah you need to put a lot of thought into it but if it's like you have all these people that spend so much time determining where to go to dinner. It's like, does it really matter where you go? Like, you're going to have food. If you have a bad meal, like, what does it mean? Like, you had a bad meal. You go at it again tomorrow and right. you do it right, again. Exactly. Like, so if they can have this mentality of like just making decisions faster that way, is it going to, are you going to lose clients because of it? No. Are you going to have an SEC audit because of it? No. Okay, then just let someone else make the decision. So I think that's a good strategy. I want to get to your other point of workflows. Because I, I want to get down to that. That's something that's like near and dear to my heart. I've got a presentation I do on workflows. And I think that the difficulty with them is that people feel it institutionalizes the business from that standpoint. What have you seen now looking at the great firms? You, know, you talk about wanting to reduce your clicks. What makes a firm great at using workflows, right? What, what, what have you identified that like, what are those firms that are just using workflows so effectively? What are they doing in terms of building the workflows, thinking through the workflows, executing on them, et cetera, that differentiates them from their peers. Yeah, I think that what I see there is the firms that are doing a great job at it have a real understanding of the end game. So some firms create workflows that somebody in an ivory tower thought made sense, but didn't really, it didn't really translate to the ultimate touch point for the client. So what does that mean? For the client. The firms that do it really well understand what the end sort of output should be. And then they work backwards. And the the goal that you're trying to really get accomplished is to, again, you're not institutionalizing service, right? But you're because processes are back-ended, right? You don't need to tell a client, hey, we're gonna put you into our process. And you know. <laughs> Like you're not going to do that, right? But what it does is it takes the it takes the thinking out of 
how do you service your clients so that something doesn't get messed up or somebody's having somebody takes off they're on vacation and all of a sudden they were the person the sole person that you know sent out the welcome kit to the client and maybe for certain clients you send out a gift or a you know something right we have a box that we send out to uh, larger larger clients that we're starting to work with we call it a black box and it's really nice has some stuff in it right and we have some processes in our salesforce system that all all my advisor all my consultants have to do is click that button an email goes, automatically goes to the person that's responsible for that and she knows to send out the box right and so and we're even trying to make that even more automated right because if the consultant forgets to check the box then nothing happens so the point is is understanding what you're trying to get accomplished and automating the thinking really the, or, or the lack you, you, you want to think as little as possible right in order to deliver a high level of service it means you want to automate your the whole process so that the client they come in they have a meeting they come on board they sign up you have a you know like a new client welcome letter is a little bit tacky at this point some wow thing that they get automatically two or three days after they've opened an account then they have another you know maybe another letter or automatic meeting set where they you're going to review their statement so that you can walk through if it's the first time they're working with you and maybe you're at Schwab and they don't They've never seen a Schwab statement before. So you want to review that with them, tell them how to read it. Just so many things that you can automate. The clients don't realize that their name came up in the system and, that, and they got a birthday card, right? But and I don't really know if I'm answering your question really that well, but it really comes down to setting up processes so that you don't have to think about the things that, that could be automated so that you can spend your time. Um, you, you did a, a YouTube video about being present. With your clients right and if you can automate the day-to-day -day stuff right it allows you to be more present with your clients or your team because you know that these other things are being taken care of um you know like i wear the same clothes pretty much all the time right i have the same jeans or i have four different colors right i have the same shirts right because i don't have i don't want to have to think about what i wear every day because i want to spend that mental energy on things that are more important like my team these calls, talking with clients, right? So I try to, I know I can't put my clothes in a CRM system, but I can automate it as best I can. I automate my morning. Um, it's all of the things that, that free up your brain capacity for what's really important to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that, you know, you make a really great point there of like the, having an end in mind is what you alluded to at the beginning. I think that what people tend to forget, I, I just would add, what is the beginning action and what's the end, right? When you're thinking about a workflow, like get the beginning and the end and then fill in the holes. But you, you run into this issue with like the curse of knowledge, as I call it, right? Where you just know it so well that you don't know how to break it down because you've been doing it for so long. It's kind of like how we are with making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Like to break down all of those steps is like silly. You're like, yeah, just get the peanut butter and just put it on. You know what to do. Like, but if someone doesn't know how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, like you really got to break it down. But we can't break it down because we just know it. It's the curse of knowledge at times. Right. And I think that to your point of being present with your clients, it's also being present with that, that situation and being precise with that workflow as detailed as you can so that other people can plug and play. You know, we've been talking a lot about efficiency. We've been talking about, you know, workflows, which leads to efficiencies, which leads to capacity, which leads to more servicing of clients, more presence with clients. And I think that that's where the industry is going. I'm curious on your side, right? As there's been so much 
focus on M&A, on PE, on consolidation in our industry, and also on the, the commoditization of investment management occurring in our space. What do you see? You know, you spent you know, a few decades in our space and you've seen it evolve drastically. Yeah. What does the next decade look like in, in our industry with everything that's going on? Yeah, I think that I think M and A will continue. We all know, and we don't need to get into the numbers that you know the the average age of the advisor in our industry keeps getting older and older, right? So trying to solve for that, and so M and A, I say M and A, but succession planning is really important. I think PE firms out there recognize how much value there is in an advisory practice, and so they've come into the business. Um, I don't necessarily think that it's a good thing. I'm not a huge fan of PE buyouts. You know, if you're trying to, you know, they want they want more and more and more, bring more AUM and bring more AUM in, right? Cut costs, cut costs. You know, right now, what's the next quarter? What's the next quarter? What's the next quarter? If you're running a really successful advisory practice and doing the right thing for your clients, and you're and you're ha- and you have a high service model, sometimes it takes a while to bring good clients in. Sometimes you don't want to keep bringing in more and more clients. I'm not a huge fan of that. I'm not a. When I was a manager, I would coach my advisors to find ways to not offload, but, you know, reduce the number of clients that they have or households that they have. It's the 80-20 rule. So spend more time with that 20% of your clients to do 80% of the revenue and you'll get more referrals because um, you're spending more time with them. It just, it just will happen. I don't believe that PE firms have the patience for stuff like that. Um, mm. You know, I think that I've seen too many really good firms, super OSJs, whatever you want to call it, take PE money and uh, the culture changes, right? What once was a, you know, hey, we're different. We're, we're like the old school, you know, I would say Smith Barney, we're the old school Smith Barney culturally and all that other stuff. And, and then they take PE money and all of a sudden, you know, the principals are getting hammered every quarter by the prince, by the, by the, by the, uh, the PE guys on the, on the numbers, on the numbers, on the numbers, on the numbers. And they move away from the people, the people, the people. And so I think that that's something that everyone has to really be careful about. Um, if you're going to take any type of PE money, it really needs to be a strategic partner that understands the business, that understands a long-term game plan, um, is not necessarily looking to flip, flip you, um, and understands that the client is the number one thing that you're looking at. I do think that we are going to continue to see the uh, advisors voting with their feet in terms of where they see in the industry going, that is independence from W-2, and so it's not just wires, right? So W-2, that could be wires, regionals, uh, to independence. And this comment I'm gonna make may be a little bit controversial. And, I, and, and so within independence, you have advisors that affiliate with independent broker-dealers, right? They have brokerage business, they have advisory business. Those are great, and there's some great firms. Then there's a, a subset of those advisors that be, you know have their own RIAs, right? And they're, they're all advisory based, you know, all fee based. And so they have an RIA, they don't do any brokerage business and they start this thing. It's going to be cool. I'm going to open up my own RIA. It's going to be awesome. I'm going to get hundred percent payout and all this great stuff. And then they get audited by the SEC and it sucks up six months of their life. And so I think that we've seen this trend of increase in, in RIA activity. I think two to three years from now, we're going to see that sort of unwind a little bit, meaning M&A will still be taking place because we're going to see these smaller RIAs roll up into bigger RIAs because it wasn't what they thought it was going to be. Right. Mm. And they have, you know, they have a hundred million dollars 
or 200 million or 300 million in my in my philosophy in my opinion you need to have at least a billion to be an efficient RIA to be able to handle to have the capacity to spend money on technology to have a good COO right to to have the money to do those things and then have a, have a good bottom line mm-hmm. and, and so I think we're going to see a trend there uh, where you're going to start to see some roll-ups and almost sort of like RIAs, the number of RIAs actually going down, sort of like what you see with the broker-dealer business. Like if you look at the number of broker-dealers that were around over the last couple of years, that number keeps going down because these small BDs with, a, with 50 guys or 100 guys, right, they're folding up because it's, it's too cumbersome now and they can actually make more money by taking their 50 advisors and roll up into some bigger firm Get rid of all the compliance, have the other firm do all the compliance. They get a decent payout and they end up making more money with, with I'll say, no, not no risk, but a lot less risk because they're not having to do compliance anymore, right? So I see that trend happening within the RIA space. I think deals on the M&A side are still pretty high. You know, I, I've seen some deals that are in the anywhere between the 10, you know, 10X of EBOC, 15. I mean, Ron Carson did a 20X or whatever. Um, there's some, you always got to look at the devils and the details of those deals. And so I still think that multiples will stay at those levels, but I think the structure of those deals is changing. The PE firms are trying to minimize their risk and they're not being as drunken sailor like, meaning just throwing money at firms and, you know, highest bidder, you know, no back ends, no, you know, no give backs, probably some more sellers' notes involved and, stuff like that. So more risk, more exposure, not real risk, more exposure to the seller if things don't work out. Yeah. That's really interesting because I mean, I've talked about this as well. It's like this pendulum that's happened in this space, right? In in your time, it went from, you know, being part of a wirehouse, then you went to RIA, the independent, and that was your selling point as a sell against it. And now we're basically, the pendulum swinging back over to a wirehouse model, but it's now an RIA wirehouse model. So you're just going to RIA, large RIAs are just becoming big institutions, but they're just not called wirehouses. They're just called aggregators <laughs> at this point. Right. So it's a so wirehouse. They have a W-2 option. They're buying up everybody. And now they have hundreds of advisors underneath them. They're all, and they're W-2. And you have to follow their policies and you have to use their brand. So I have this saying that in, in our industry, the more things change, the more they stay the same. Yeah, it's a, it's just like it's like nothing's different. It's just you know moving, shuffling things around, and uh, and moving them around to let people you know get what they want. You know, I what does this all mean in your mind for the client? I, I'm always curious from perspective there because you know ultimately it gets back to you know the decisions that are being made. I know that a lot of firms doing it for the right reasons, but you know getting back to the client, right? You know, providing more access to clients, providing more services to clients, providing an enhanced client experience. What does this mean for them if this trend that you project is there? Is it a good thing for the, the clients? Is it a bad thing? And I'm sure that some of our listeners will be, a, you know, they'll fight one way or the other, no matter which side you go on, because I, I've talked to both sides. But I'm curious from your perspective. Yeah, that's an awesome question. Um, I think it's a great thing for clients. I think that one of the reasons why I, I see advisors going independent is because they're limited with how they can work with their clients, right? Um, I think the wires w2 type firms are trying to force subtly some not subtly (laughs) their own investment processes and philosophies on the advisor to deliver to the client right as advisors go independent own their own rias they give them the flexibility to work with the client how they want service them how they want 
like a, I call it the real world, right? If you were not in financial services and you were in some other world selling a product, you can do so many things for your clients, service them in ways that wow them. And so it, it opens up the door to an advisor to really do, not, I mean, look, you have to follow, your, follow rules, right? But, but really be a, do a tremendous job with servicing clients, how you want to service the client, how they, how they should be serviced, what, the way they deserve to be serviced. It also gives you the ability to run money the way you want to run the money, not the way the firm's telling you how to run money. And because your economics are so, are so much better on the independent side, believe it or not, money's not an issue, right? Whether it's this product or that product doesn't really matter because you're primarily you know, advisory-based recharging a fee. You're getting a high payout on it. So you're not like beholden to, well, I got to sell this product because I get a higher fee on it because my firm's taking 60 cents of every dollar. I was talking to an, an advisor today and he's leaving a wirehouse firm because he does some annuity business for his clients, but, the, but they basically limit the, the revenue that the firm pays them on the annuity. And then he loses, he's got a 40% payout. So he's getting half the, uh, the annuity and, and insurance business fee. Wells is keeping, it's a Wells, they're, they're keeping the other half, right? And then they're taking 60 cents of every dollar that he makes. So he's like, Frank, I, I basically get like, you know, 10 cents for every dollar of business I generate, right? If he's on the independent side, which is what he wants to do, that stress, right? That thought, that, that discussion in his mind is off the table. He doesn't have to worry about it. And so he can be really, truly agnostic to his client with what product or service they should be working on. And not, again, I'm not saying that he's doing the wrong thing and all that. That's not what I'm saying. But, the, but it's human nature, right? Though, mm. and I think it's, it's all going to be great for clients. I think that social media, candidly, I think the pandemic, 2020, and clients uh, getting so much more used to technology and Zoom and, and not seeing their advisor physically in person as much as they thought they needed before has opened up the marketplace for a financial advisor to do business with people in geographies that maybe they never thought possible. The challenge that the advisor has, has is how do you brand yourself so those clients that are maybe in two states over find out who you are, right? Which is something I, thought, I think you've done exceptionally well with your branding, yourself, you know, your, your own branding and then the branding of your company. So, yeah, I think that that's such an interesting, I, you know, and I appreciate those good words. And I think that that's an interesting perspective on the client. I, I do think it's, you know, I do think it is a good thing for the client. I do think what's interesting about this whole dynamic of what's happening is that I think over the next 10 to 15 years, you're going to see that trend to what you're saying, right? Moving back into the aggregator model. But then you're going to have these younger people that want to go back that forgot what it was like to be independent. They're going to be going independent again, and we're going to be right back at it. Uh, as well. And I, but I do think it's good for the client because if you can get more scale, then you can get better service and you can get better offerings, better opportunities, better services as well and better value. So I do think I do agree with you on that side heavily uh, for that. But, you know, I mean, you and I could talk for, for hours. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been on your podcast, you're coming, you're on my podcast. I mean, we could do this for, for days, but I, I know that people want to get back to servicing their clients or maybe their family if they're driving. So I, I want to wrap this up by asking my two questions that I always like to to ask at the end of the podcast because I've been really appreciative of your time and, and your insight. It's been, I mean, I've loved this conversation. This is my, this stuff is what gets me going. Um, yeah. 
But I always like to ask because I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a lifelong learner. I love, I love to learn. That's why I do these conversations selfishly. But I also like to learn from books. And I always like to ask smart people what's some books that they're reading. And I know you already mentioned two, two great ones that I've read, Good to Great and Traction. But I'm curious, what's one book out there that you think everybody should read outside of those two you've already talked about? Yeah, so I actually have it over here. Um, I keep it by me. So I have a friend of mine, Ed Milet. He's a big social media guy, but Ed Milet, and he wrote this book called The Power of One More and the Ultimate Guide to Happiness and Success. And, and I read this book, and it's, got, um, it's a really easy read, and it really helps you in your personal life and your professional life, spiritually, with your relationships at work, with your relationships at, you know, on your personal side. Um, and I think if you read that book, it's very powerful. And it just really talks about the power of one more, you know, one more phone call to a client, right? You have clients that are going through something stressful, right? One more call to them, one more check-in with them. You never know if that one more thing is going to make a difference in their life or not, right? Saying one more prayer at the end of the night or being thankful for one more thing in your life. Uh, all of those types of things are, are powerful. And he goes into, the, into why those things are, are so uh, meaningful to him, and it really resonates really well. I love the book; it's it's phenomenal. So, Ed Milet, the power of, of one more. I love that. I, I I've heard that in some sales books as well, right? Just make one more call before you go out, and you never know that that may be the call that closes a big deal that you've been waiting for all quarter. So, I, I love that concept. So, the final question is something I've taken from Barons at their conferences, but I always like to ask my guests. We talked about a lot here, right? A lot of value, a lot of you know insight and, and wisdom. What's one piece of actionable advice you hope people listening to this podcast take away from our conversation here today? I would say that the one piece of actionable advice that they should take away is you have to be obsessed with creating efficiency in your business. Like you have to be obsessed with it. You have to lose sleep over it because efficiency in an advisory practice, the ultimate goal, right, is to be better at servicing your clients because that's what's going to get you money, right? Make you more money, bring more clients and more referrals. So how do you do that? It comes down to efficiency. That could mean better technology. That could mean better staff, having the right staff in the right seats, doing the things that they do the best at. So being obsessed with that is something I think if you can focus on that as a practitioner and maybe being obsessed with those types of things in all areas of your life, right? Be obsessed with being efficient at home as a father as a husband and a wife, I try to be obsessed with that as being a good husband and creating efficiencies in my life and my daily routine so I can be more present with my wife when I'm around. So I'm obsessed yeah. with figuring out those little, those little things. I love that, that, that kind of mantra, right? Be obsessive about efficiency. I think that that's such a great, a great tool. And it's, uh, you know, some people say, well, that's not my job, but it really is because it, it's a catalyst to you doing a better job for your clients, for yeah. you to be a better leader for your and, and let me just, now let me just say one thing, because you said this before, and I think it's really important. This is a problem that some people have. I know we're running late here. Being obsessed with efficiency doesn't mean overanalyzing, right? Paralysis by analysis. You can't do that. What I mean is, Come up with processes, implement, tweak, change, keep honing it. But you have to make decisions. You know, I always say a bad decision or an inaccurate decision is better than no decision because you learn from it. Like, okay, we started that process and that, that didn't work really well. There was, a, there was a, a glitch here because this didn't go out the right way or whatever. Okay, now you know. 
So being obsessed with being efficient means you, you have to implement something and you have to constantly work on it. So I just want to make sure your audience understands that you don't want to overanalyze so you don't do anything. Yeah, uh, that is a huge point, a point worth spending time on. Agree wholeheartedly with that as well. Well, Frank, dude, this has been amazing. I really do appreciate your insight and your time. I know that others are going to want to continue to follow you, follow everything that you're doing, follow, you know, get more insight and knowledge from you, maybe even work with you. So what's the best way for our audience to get in touch and follow you and, and, and be part of the uh, of your network? Sure. You can, uh, I would say, check out my Instagram account, which is franklarosa.elite. You can check out our LinkedIn account, which is obviously under Frank LaRosa. You can shoot me an email at frank at eliteconsultingpartners.com. Um, our website is eliteconsultingpartners.com. DM me, give me a call. Happy to talk and strategize. Uh, find out how we can help you. I appreciate that. Frank, thanks so much, man. Be well, stay okay. well, and just always remember, go Braves, all right? <laughs> thanks, man. <laughs> thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Bridging the Gap. Don't forget to give us a rating and let us know what you think. 